The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 19. The title of my message for you today is The Old Rugged Cross. Some of you will recognize those words from a, a favorite old hymn. And we'll get into that. But I want to set things up like this. One of the most important decisions that any company will make is what logo it's going to use. Now, some companies have done such a good job of branding themselves and picking just the right logo that they've essentially become indistinguishable from that logo. I'll give you a couple of examples. If you see a technology device like a phone or a computer with an image of an apple with a bite taken out of it, you know that 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 piece of equipment is an apple product. And if you're driving down the freeway and you look to the the side and you see a set of golden arches, you know that you're not far away from McDonald's, right? And if you happen to look down at someone's feet and they're wearing sneakers with a, a swoosh emblem on them, you know that that person is wearing Nikes. Like I said, each of these companies have done an amazing job of of creating brand recognition. And it's something that every company, every organization strives for. They want to be sticky. They want to be memorable. But none of the companies I just mentioned, as globally as they're recognized and known, none of them possesses the most widely recognizable symbol in the world. That honor belongs to the church. And it's the cross. You can literally go anywhere in the world. You can go to the furthest reaches of some, uh, you know, godforsaken stretch of beach or some desert in Africa or some jungle in Papua New Guinea. And if you pull out a cross, whoever you're talking to is immediately going to know who you are and what you represent. And they're going to know you're a follower of Jesus. Now, what's interesting about that is as far as logos go, the cross is a curious choice. Certainly, if the early church had hired a think tank or gotten together with a consultancy group or marketing firm, none of them would have suggested going with the cross. You know, a lot's changed since then. Today, we we wear crosses as jewelry. We we adorn our homes and oftentimes our businesses or or oftentimes churches with them. But, But if you were to go back to the first century, Nobody was wearing a cross as a fashion statement. And by the way, I don't have a problem at all with wearing crosses. But what you would have seen in the image of a cross is an instrument of torture and death. And yet something incredible happened. By about the middle of the first century, the cross had become the focal point of the entire Christian faith. To the extent that when Paul the Apostle writes his letter to the Galatians, he says this. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, what would cause him to boast in the cross? In another one of his writings, Paul said this. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What would cause the Apostle Paul to boast about the cross? And for that matter... How did this horrific form of ancient execution come to define the movement we know as Christianity? That's the question we're going to consider together this morning. Will you begin reading with me there in verse 16 of John 19? 
So finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus and carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Notice again how John doesn't linger on any of the gory details surrounding Jesus' crucifixion, but instead he he states the facts simply. In verse 18, he uses just three words to describe what Jesus went through. Earlier in the chapter, he uses eight words to describe his flogging. Here he uses just three to describe his crucifixion. You find them in verse 18, where it says, they crucified him. Now, perhaps he spared his reading audience the details of crucifixion because it was a scene that they were all too familiar with. Rome crucified its victims by the tens of thousands at this time, and John didn't want his audience losing their lunch, and so he just states the facts and moves on. But there's another possibility, another explanation for why perhaps John chose not to dwell on the physical aspects of Jesus' suffering there on the cross. And And I I tend to lean in this direction. I I think the reason he didn't highlight what Jesus went through physically is because he knew that represented only a small fraction of what Jesus was going through in the spiritual realm as he hung there paying for the sins of the world for six hours on what we call Good Friday. You see, as intense and as horrific as the physical pain was, it pales in comparison to what Jesus went through in those hours as he who knew no sin became sin on behalf of us. But regardless of why John chose not to talk at length about it, I think a few words on the subject of crucifixion are probably appropriate here. So bear with me. In his book, Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph Klausner, the the learned Jewish scholar, wrote this, and I quote, Crucifixion is the most terrible and cruel death which man has ever devised for taking vengeance on his fellow man. And that's well said. You know, the word excruciating, we sometimes use that word to describe the most intense forms of pain. And that word excruciating literally means out of or from the cross, as though we're subliminally acknowledging every time we use that word that the worst kind of pain can only be experienced in death by crucifixion. It was so horrible that it was actually illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. No, this punishment was reserved for just the lowest of the low and the vilest of criminals. Now, from Rome's perspective, crucifixion served two important functions. First, it ensured the maximum amount of pain was inflicted on the victim who was unfortunately dying by crucifixion. And secondly, it functioned as a very stellar deterrent for anyone who was thinking about rebelling against Rome. Every time you walked by a cross with with a, a criminal hanging there, the message rang loud and clear, don't mess with Rome or you could be next. Now, by the time Jesus arrived at Calvary, the place of the skull, he was he was already on the verge of death. He endured scourging prior to this. We talked about that last week and how 
Oftentimes, the victims of scourging didn't even survive that. But even after that, Jesus was forced then to carry the horizontal beam of his own cross through a circuitous route through the city on his way to Calvary, the the hill located just outside the city walls, so that the people could mock and jeer him. When they arrived there, Jesus is then thrust to the ground. And I need you to picture Roman soldiers taking big Nine, seven to nine inch metal spikes. Think of a railroad tie and a hammer. And they they positioned it here on the wrist, not in the hands where you commonly see in the paintings. If they had driven the nail through here when he he was hung on the cross, it would rip through his hands and he'd fall off. And so they they would actually crucify people by nailing them here in the wrist. Now, what that did is it severed the median nerve, which is one of the main nerves in the the arm and in the body. And so it ensured that Jesus felt recurring pain surging up and down his arms and coursing through his whole body for the next six hours. They then bent his knees at a 90 degree angle and drove another nail through his feet. At this point, the cross was hoisted up and then dropped into a hole that had been dug for it. When it came down, Jesus' body would slump down and his his elbows and shoulders would become dislocated immediately and an intense amount of pressure would rest on his diaphragm so that now the only way he could breathe was to arch his back and pull up on those nails and grab a breath before slumping back down in pain to exhale. Breathing was next to impossible and speaking was difficult. Death, which usually was caused by asphyxiation, came slowly and painfully to the victims of crucifixion. So this is what Jesus is going through. And then were you to look above his head, you would see a sign. And we read about it in verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate and said, don't write king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. This is another typical aspect of a Roman crucifixion scene. They used that title or the titulus as it was called to to list the offenses for which the criminal was being executed. Oddly enough, with Jesus, he had done nothing wrong. Pilate himself acknowledged Jesus' innocence. And so where his crimes would be listed above Jesus' head, it simply stated, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, while he was walking through the city on the way to Calvary, Jesus probably wore this sign around his neck so everyone who saw him would know what he was being executed for, the crimes he had committed against Rome. And even in this, there's a picture. Let me get your attention here. You see, we have to remember the greater context. It's the Passover season. And during the Passover season, Jerusalem would swell to three to four times its normal size. You have all of these pilgrims converging on the ancient city to celebrate the feast. And for every family, there was a lamb. Every family had a lamb that would then, at the end of the week, be sacrificed to celebrate the Passover. Now, while they were waiting for that day to come, they would keep the lambs, the sheep, in communal pens. And they would all keep their sheep together. 
So how did they distinguish which lamb belonged to which family? And the simple answer is they would hang a sign around each lamb's neck that identified the family that it belonged to. Knowing that to be the case, how fitting then is it that God, in a sense, takes this sign and hangs it above the head of his own son, thus identifying his choice as the sacrificial lamb for that Passover. Notice, too, how in verse 21, it says the chief priest argued with Pilate over what he had written. And, and it seems kind of minor and insignificant that they would say, no, 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 don't say right that he's the king of the Jews, but that he said he's the king of the Jews. Why would they have such a problem with this? Well, to understand that, you need to know a bit about Jewish culture. You see, one of the favorite literary devices that was employed by the Jewish authors of the Old Testament was acrostic poetry. Jewish people love poetry, and, and there are plenty of acrostic poems in the Old Testament. You know what a, an acrostic poem is, where you take the first letter of a series of words and you form a word from that? A simple example uh, preachers like to use is the word joy, J-O-Y, and how it's a prescription for joy is Jesus, others, you. And so throughout the Old Testament, you'll find acrostic poetry. One example is Psalm 119, the longest psalm extols the virtues, the beauties of God's word. And the whole thing is based on the Hebrew alphabet. Proverbs 31, another acrostic poem. Okay, why am I telling you all that? Well, when you looked at this sign, with, with that as a backdrop, that's the lens through which they read things. They were always looking to pull out poems and, and, and to see deeper meaning. If you were to look at the, pi the sign Pilate had written, the four words were Jesus, Nazareth, King, Jews. And in Hebrew, it was Y-H-V-H, -H, or more literally, yod Hey vav Hey. What does that mean? What's significant about that? Well, listen, that is the very, those are the very letters that were used to write the name of God. Oh, is that crazy? Amen. You see, the Jewish people, the name of God is Yahweh. But they would never speak the name of God. It was far too holy to speak. So whenever they wanted to reference God's name, they would just say Hashem, which means the name. And whenever they came to the name of God in Scripture, which it comes up a lot in the Old Testament, they would just write the consonants of his name, which were Y-H-V-H. It's a word that shows up 6,518 times in the Old Testament. What that ensured is, as those religious leaders looked up at that sign, they saw the very name of God. God wasn't whispering. He was shouting to not only those men who were gathered around the cross, but to the whole world, this is my son. He had it written in Hebrew, and he had it written in Greek, and he had it written in Latin. Hebrew was the language of religion, Latin was the language of the scholars, and Greek was the language of commerce, so that everyone who walked by would know, this is my son. That's what God did. In that sense, it's almost like Pilate, unbeknownst to himself, was writing the first gospel tract. I love that thought. You know what a, a tract is, anybody? It's like a, a simple little pamphlet, usually only a couple pages long, that simply and concisely shares the gospel. Like back when I was in Bible college, we would take these tracts that shared the gospel and we'd go down to the beach and we would pray for people and we'd hand them out and try to engage them in conversation and share the gospel using these gospel tracts. And, and in a sense, this sign kind of functioned in that way. I mean, think about it. It tells you everything that you need to know 
to find salvation. It states Jesus of Nazareth. Even in his name, we get a glimpse of his identity and his mission. For the name Jesus means God is salvation. The angel told Mary and Joseph, you shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The word Nazareth roots the story in an actual place. In other words, we know this isn't a fable. It's not a fairy tale. These are actual events. Jesus was a real person. He was from the town of Nazareth. The phrase king of the Jews lets us know his title and his position. He's a king, but he's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the Greeks and the Romans, because that's what the sign is written in. Earlier, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And so he's a different kind of king. He's heaven's king, but he left his throne to come to the earth to die on the cross in our place. The whole gospel's there. Now, some of you are like, oh, wow, that's some fancy preaching, but I think it's a bit of a stretch. I mean, you really expect me to believe that that was a gospel tract? You can believe whatever you want, but I'm here to tell you it was effective. Listen to this. We know it was effective because John tells us there were two criminals crucified next to Jesus. Well, at one point, one of those criminals was convicted in his heart, and he turns to Jesus, and what does he say? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, where did he get the idea about that from? My guess is he looked up above Jesus' head, read what Pilate had written, felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit in his heart, and was brought to a place of genuine faith in God. And Jesus turns to him and says, ah, today you're going to be with me in paradise. It's, it's powerful. It's powerful. All of that in the cross. But there's more going on in verses 23 and 24. Let's look at those. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get to keep it. Now this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. You can imagine the soldiers casting dice for Jesus' few belongings. And there were four soldiers we know that attended Jesus' death and execution. And one of their perks for, for you know, taking this unglorious job was that you got to keep whatever the criminal had. I mean, it's not like they needed it anymore. When Jesus arrived at Golgotha, evidently he was wearing about five pieces of clothing. The customary garments of the time included a turban, a belt, a cloak, an undergarment, and sandals. And so we read that they distributed the first four items equally and evenly between the four soldiers. But there was one thing that remained, this undergarment, which was valuable, evidently. They marveled at it. They held it. It was seamless. It was, it was woven without a, a sewing needle. And so they decided, instead of tearing it up, let's gamble for it. And John points out that in doing this, they actually fulfilled an ancient prophecy. And he quotes it for us here. John's quoting from Psalm 22. Now, this is crazy. I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but it, it's so mind-blowing that it bears repeating. David writes Psalm 22 a thousand years before Jesus is born and some 600 years before crucifixion was even invented as a means of capital punishment. It was originally designed by the Persians before the Romans took it over and, and kind of perfected the art, if you will. 
And so long before that ever even existed as a means of execution, David writes Psalm 22. And in that Psalm, he talks about how the Messiah's hands and feet will be pierced and how not a bone of his will be broken and how, yes, they will even cast lots for his garments. You can't make this stuff up. Only the God of heaven could orchestrate the details of the story of his son in that way. You see, things like this, what they do is they validate and they authenticate the divine inspiration of this book. So when you build your life on the foundation of God's word, you know you're standing on a firm footing, firm foundation. You can build your life on this book because, friends, that's just, I don't know, one of more than 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his first coming. The Bible is filled with prophecy and every one of those prophecies, it, it underscores the validity of what we believe in as Christians. If that's not cool enough, let me blow your mind just a little bit more with Psalm 22. The Psalm begins with this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If that sounds familiar to it, it's because that's what Jesus said while he hung on the cross. And I, I, I can't say for sure, but I wonder if he went on to recite the rest or if he just let that hang in the air because he knew that the religious men who surrounded the cross that day would immediately know which psalm he was quoting from. And they could, in their minds, recite verbatim the rest of the psalm. And I wonder what happened when those religious leaders got to the point that talked about his hands and his feet being pierced and them casting lots for his garments. And they look down and they see the soldiers doing just that. It's shocking. What might be just as shocking, though, is this is the only earthly possession Jesus had that really had any value at all. I mean, can we just stand back and remember that this is almighty God in human flesh we're talking about? He before whom angels worship and live to do his bidding. The very one who possesses all authority and all power in heaven and on earth for 33 years possesses nothing of earthly value. You remember that one occasion where a would-be follower came to Jesus and said, I'll follow you. And what did Jesus say? He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you want to follow me and become a disciple, more power to you, but you should know something. It's not the quick route to success and fortune and fame. I'm homeless. That was Jesus. Now, to understand why Jesus chose poverty, we need to turn to the writings of the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 gives us the explanation. And I'd love for us to read this together out loud. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The gospel is not a rags to riches tale, but rather a riches to rags tale as Jesus leaves heaven and comes to this earth so that you might be clothed or draped, as it were, in God's righteousness. Sorry, You might say it like this. God allowed his son to be treated the way that you and I deserve to be treated so that he could treat you and I the way that his son deserved to be treated. This is the very heart and soul of the gospel message. 
Now, I, I'm going to move on, but there's one more thing I need to tell you about this tunic. And I feel justified in spending this time here because John lingers on this point. You know, it's a lot of time that he dedicates to telling us about Jesus' wardrobe that day. I mean, he uses three words to describe his crucifixion and at least twice as many to describe his underwear here. Now, what is up with that? Clearly, something more is going on, and there is. You see, John wants us to understand that this garment that Jesus wore was the very same garment that all the priests who did their work in the temple and offered the sacrifices day after day. And and more to the point, it is the exact garment that the high priest was wearing on this day as he offered the, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. In other words, John is saying, Jesus isn't just the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but simultaneously, he is also the high priest of heaven who is alone fit to offer that sacrifice. This is the point of the cross. I don't think I told you that earlier, but that's the first fill in the blank, the point of the cross. But now we're going to move on to the second the second point in our outline, which is the power of the cross. We've talked about the point of the cross. Now let's finish by talking about the power of the cross. In verse 25, it goes on to say, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So a lot of Marys. It was a popular name in those days. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son and to the disciple here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. We've arrived now at those final moments before Jesus' death. And notice who is there. John points to four women and himself. By the way, where are all the disciples? (laughs) They had run off. They were scared. They were chickens. They were hiding behind locked doors. But we've got these women here. Can I just give a shout out to the ladies? The guys were clearly not man enough to be there. But the women were there. And so Jesus speaks to one of them. He addresses this word to his mother. Now, this is one of seven statements that Jesus makes from the cross, right? And, you know, it's interesting being a pastor. I've I've had, I'll call it the honor of, of being in the room with folks as they transition, as they pass from this life to the next. And, and in those moments, I can tell you that everyone hangs on every word that that person might say. And it's usually a struggle for them to get the words out. And, and so everyone gives all of their attention to the call. I don't know. Answer your phone and then put it on silent. Thank you. Sometimes people's last words are inspiring. Sometimes they're tragic. Sometimes they're funny, right? I was reading, uh, you know, epitaphs that people left. People have a sense of humor. One of them said, here lies John Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. Another one um, said, I told you I was sick. <laughs> you know, so. But one thing last words always tend to be is memorable. And of course, nowhere is that more true than with Jesus. And every word he speaks is, is worth studying and, and teasing out and examining. And although we don't have the time to do a deep dive, I want to just briefly look at each word that Jesus spoke from the cross. The first thing he said while hanging there was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. 
Now, the fact that the very first word to form on his lips was the word father, that's not surprising. After all, Jesus lived his entire life in, in communion with his father and in, in constant communication with his father. And, and so we expect to hear him crying out and praying to his father in this moment. That's not surprising. But what is surprising is what follows. We might have expected Jesus to say, Father, get them. Give them what they've got coming to them. But that's not what he said. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And we see in this word his incredible heart for forgiveness and compassion. The second words Jesus spoke were words of hope directed towards the thief dying next to him. I mentioned a moment ago how the thief at some point had a change of heart. He began by cursing the Lord, but then he was stricken in his conscience and he asked the Lord to remember him and Jesus turned to him. And in the second word that Jesus shares, he says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And he offers hope to a dying man. We just finished reading Jesus' third word from the cross. It was a word of love directed towards his mother. And so we note that at this point, the first three times Jesus speaks from the cross, his words are outward focused and others centered. He prayed in order for his executioners and for the thief next to him. And now here we find him expressing concern for his mother. He looks at John and he says, John, I want you to take my mom into your care. Mary, I want you to treat John like he's family. You're going to live with him. And most scholars agree that Jesus' dad, his earthly father, Joseph, was out of the picture. And Mary was probably a widow by this point. And so he entrusts her care to John. And, and history records how from this moment forward, John took Mary as his own mother. The fourth words of Jesus were what we talked about earlier. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is a dramatic turning point in the, 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 the hours that Jesus spent on the cross. For I, will, I believe it was at this moment that heaven turned its back on the sun as Jesus became a sin offering for the world. The Bible describes how at about the midway point of his crucifixion, so after he'd been hanging there for three hours, the skies went dark. It was like a picture in the natural of what had happened in the spiritual. After this word, he fell silent. And for the next three hours, the only thing that anybody heard was <sighs> as they listened to his gasping for breath, and they watched the life ebbing out of his body. Then just before he gave up his spirit, Jesus speaks in rapid succession three more times, and John records two of those statements for us. Look at verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine and vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop and lifted it to his lips. When he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Somebody say amen. amen. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's go back to that first statement. I thirst. This marks the only time Jesus thought of himself or his own needs. And it shows us the humanity of Christ. You know, can we see this same scene through another lens? Remember again that Jesus is very God of very God. And that makes it strange. 
Because in that regard, Jesus is the one who created every drop of water on the planet, every ocean, every river, and every sea. Jesus created them all. He's the same God who in the Old Testament brought water from a rock. The same God who in the New Testament turned water into wine. And so he easily could have created a fountain, a water drinking fountain, a a bottle of Gatorade for himself. He could have done that, yet he refused to use his powers to alleviate his own suffering. Suffering. Why? Because Jesus wanted to experience the full weight of sin and the suffering that it causes when he hung on the cross. You know, earlier, at one point, they offered him a mixture of gall, which was an ancient form of morphine, we might call it. And, and it was a numbing agent that would remove some of the pain. And Jesus refused it, refused it because, again, he needed to feel every ounce of suffering that sin brings. Now, let me tell you how that relates to your life. Because Jesus suffered, it means that he can identify with you in your suffering. We can never shake our fists at the heaven and shout to the skies. You don't know what it's like because he does. In Jesus, heaven came down. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to feel pain and suffering and loss. He knows what it's like to weep. He knows what it's like to grieve, to be tempted, to be betrayed, and yes, even to be forsaken. And so in his humanity, Jesus uniquely can empathize with you. But listen to this. That's as far as any of us can go. We can empathize with you as other humans who are together suffering. Jesus can go beyond that because he's not only fully human, he's also fully God. And in his divinity, he's also able to help you get through whatever it is you're going through. The author of the book of Hebrews points this out beautifully. Let's read this together out loud. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And you might want to underline that last phrase as well. Because he didn't sin, he was perfectly qualified as man to empathize with us, but as God to help us. So Jesus He cries, I thirst. And then just before he dies, he speaks two more times. First, he says, it is finished. And then he commits his spirit into the hands of his father. Now, Mark, in his version of events, tells us Jesus didn't just whisper or whimper, it's finished. He didn't say, I'm finished, but he shouted it. And you have to know that 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 call, it rang out and it shook the very foundations of hell when with his last breath, Jesus arched his back and cried out, it is done. It's finished. It's three words in English, but just one word in the original language, tetelestai. Will everybody just say tetelestai? It was a somewhat common word in that culture. It was used in a couple of different ways. First, it would be used by like a, a, a person who was completing a task. So let's say you were a construction worker and you finished framing the house, house you, would, you were building, you'd come to the foreman and you would say, Tetelestai, it's done. I did the work you gave me to do. It was also used by painters and sculptors. And after they had finished a masterpiece, they would take their brush and they would sign their name and they would put the finishing touches on a perfect piece of artwork and they would say, Tetelestai. 
And thirdly, it was a banking term. And when the final payment was made on a debt that was owed, the banker would take a stamp and he would stamp to Telestai on the bill, which meant there is nothing left that needs to be paid. And in all of these ways, don't we get a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for us? Jesus came down from heaven and he did the work his father sent him to do. And so he could say, it's finished. I did everything you called me to do, Father. And not only that, he could put the finishing touches on a perfectly lived life. He didn't sin, not even once. It was a masterpiece. And then thirdly, he paid the price for the sins of humanity. For you, it means the price has been paid and the power of the devil has been broken once and for all. And can I just say that, friends, is why we cherish the symbol of the cross. Through Jesus' death, we get eternal life. He went to the place of the skull so that you could experience salvation. He was buffeted so that you might walk in God's favor and blessing. You see, nothing illustrates the wickedness and the severity of sin like the cross. And this is why it's so important. We have this tendency to minimize or downplay the severity of sin. It's not that big of a deal. It's just, you know, a minor indiscretion. It was a poor choice. And, and what the Bible says is, no, every sin resulted in Jesus dying on the cross. So you can't minimize or downplay your sin. You can't wink at sin or sweep it under the rug. It has to be paid for. And it was by Jesus. So it illustrates the severity of sin. But simultaneously, it does something else. It demonstrates the love of God. Somebody say amen. For God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You can describe the power of something, but to demonstrate it, you've got to see it in action. God describes his love all throughout the Old Testament, but then he demonstrates it once and for all through the, the cross of Jesus Christ. And I finish with this thought. If Jesus can take that which stood for death, torture and pain and suffering and hopelessness, the ultimate symbol of suffering. If he can transform that into the ultimate symbol of hope and life, then he can certainly bring good from whatever mess you find yourself in today. Praise the Lord. I mean, if he can transform what the cross means, then don't tell me he can't find you in the middle of your storm, let's call it. Your mess. He'll, he'll take beauty. He'll bring beauty out of ashes. He'll bring glory out of a grave. He'll, he'll bring joy out of, out of something that was causing you suffering. Jesus can redeem anything, and the cross proves it. You know, there's the, that old beloved hymn that I titled this sermon after, and I want to end our time together by, by just reading it to you. But would you just close your eyes because I need you to see this. And I don't just need you to see it. I don't just need you to hear it. I need you to feel it in your heart. So let's, let's engage our emotions. Let's engage the eyes of our heart and listen to the words of that beloved old hymn that captures so well everything I've been trying to say. And here's what it says. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. 
I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world, has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. And the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For twas on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. God gave me this picture last night, and I want to share it with you again today. I want you to, again, just in lieu of everything you've heard and the scene that I've tried to paint with my words, I want you to go there. Go to the place of the skull. Go to Calvary. And I want you to see yourself as part of the crowd that stood there and watched the sinless, spotless Lamb of God hanging there, paying for the sins of the world. And I want you to hear the mocking. I want you to hear the, 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 the snide comments. And I want you to see the spittle dribbling down his, his cheeks. I want you to see the, the blood from his brow where they thrust a crown of thorns. And I want you to hear him gasping for breath. But let's take it a step further. I don't want you to just see yourself as part of the crowd. I, I want you to now go over to where that soldier is about to drive the nail through his wrist. And I want you to see yourself taking the nail out of his hands and the hammer out of his fist. And I want you to see yourself positioning that nail over Jesus' wrist. And I want you to picture yourself taking that hammer and driving the spike through his wrist. You say, why do I have to do that? That's horrific. And the answer is because it's because of you. It's because of me. It was our sin that put him on the cross. We're responsible, just as responsible as those soldiers. And so as you drive the nail through his wrist, you hear the, the, the cries escape his lips and the involuntary shrieks. But, but then you see him looking towards you and I want you to catch his gaze. I want you to look deep into his eyes. And I want you to see again the tears that roll down his cheeks. And now I want you to hear what he says to you in that moment. I want you to hear him say, Father, forgive. Now insert your name. Father, forgive Daniel. He doesn't know what he's doing. For every sin I've ever committed, that caused you to have to suffer and die. You offer forgiveness, Jesus. And for that, I am eternally grateful. I owe you my life. Such love, it demands not just our gratitude, it demands our all, it demands our very lives laid down in sacrificial worship for the God who gave everything for us. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.